Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy coming live from Solar Power Summit in Brussels. My name is David Weston and I am joined once again by Michaela Hole of Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project. How are you both? Well, it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's a solar summit in snowy Brussels, which is a little bit funny, but it's great to to be here in person. It's and I just learned this morning that we now have more than 4,000 listeners um, for our podcast, which we started in December 2021. One. So we're go. doing quite well. Uh, and I'm still very happy about that. Absolutely. We have a jam-packed panel with us today, as uh, the audience will see, uh, with no less than five guests to discuss the corporate sourcing of renewable energy using power purchase agreements. Joining us today uh, span the full PPA spectrum. Uh, firstly, we have Ruud Kempener from DG Enna at the European Commission, Annie Scanlon from po uh, Policy and Impact Director from Resource, uh, Toby Ferenczi, CEO and co-founder of Granular Energy, uh, a software company that helps utilities traders and large, large energy buyers to manage their portfolio of energy certificates, uh, Heme Gohorn Pikwa. That was close. Close? <laughs> Um, Heme is a PPA and Origination Director, uh, director at EDPR. Uh, and last but not least, Nick Karamidas, Executive Director at, or for EU and Regulatory Affairs at Mitelanos, a Greece-based metallurgical company and one that is particularly electro-intensive, so keen on uh, solar power among other renewables. Uh, please welcome all of our guests. Um, Annie, I'd like to really kick off with you, if we can, uh, from Resource. Can you kind of briefly tell us what a PPA is to begin with? I think a lot of people may be not quite sure about the idea of PPA, especially from a corporate level, uh, and maybe give us some sort of facts and figures about uh, the market of PPAs. Absolutely. Um, so maybe just to first introduce the resource platform. Um, we're a platform Europe-wide, which brings together energy buyers and renewable energy suppliers. And we think a platform like this is a great way that the buyers and the suppliers can work together and jointly tackle all the, the, the issues to corporate sourcing, um, unlocking the level of renewables that we need for the energy transition, um, and of course, decarbonizing the, the industries that are purchasing those renewables. Um, so in essence, a PPA, a power purchase agreement, is a long-term energy contract. Um, it helps companies hedge their, their costs over time. Um, it's, yeah, ensures that they can account to their decarbonization strategy um, and really have something tangible to, to show that they're, they're making the efforts to contribute to the climate transition. Um, 
to kind of whet your appetites of, of PPAs and where we are in, in Europe at the moment. Um, you can see here how, how the kind of spread of countries um, is today. Uh, so this is data from 2022. Um, you can see that Spain is by far the, the leading country to sign a PPA in. Um, clearly a strong solar market, love, lots of lovely sun there. Um, and then, you know, bringing up in the second place, Sweden, um, which, yeah, not surprising, is more of a wind market. Um, Norway, again, big wind markets, um, and then Germany and the UK, which is, which is more of a mix. Here we can see, you know, who are really the, the trendsetters and leaders, leaders investing in, in renewable energy. Um, clearly, we've got the ICT sector. So these are all your Googles and Amazons um, who really you know, started the trend for PPAs back in around 2014. Um, and you can see how year on year this is this has grown. Um, heavy industry, you know, this is the chemicals, you know, heavy, heavy manufacturing um, coming in a close second. Um, and then the telecoms industry in third place. Um, I think it's interesting to look at, at the kind of growth of corporate PPAs in Europe because you know, a PPA in essence is, is paying for a new renewables asset to be built. Um, you know, there's a contract between the supplier and the buyer and that money will really build a new wind farm, um, will build a new new solar farm. Um, so yeah, you know, in, in, in essence, the, the money from these corporates are, are really a, unlocking a very crucial part of the renewables that we'll need in Europe for the energy transition. Um, looking at kind of the, the figures, I mean, I'm going to say the word gigawatts a lot. So if anyone still doesn't know what a gigawatt is, one gigawatt is enough to, to power around 750,000 houses. So you do the math. Um, in, in 2021, it was quite a bumper year. We had a lot of PPAs being signed. Um, this was mainly due to a bit of a hangover from COVID. So, you know, there were delays and, and, other, and other issues in the renewables market, which meant that then it was a, a bit of a bumper year for, for PPAs. Um, but looking at 2022, um, you know, again, an extremely strong year, despite, um, you know, regulatory uncertainty, some issues in the supply chain, again, persisting COVID impacts. Um, but if you compare it to 2020, you know, it's almost double in terms of the gigawatts installed. So last year we had about 6.6 .6 gigawatts of capacity signed uh, through PPA deals. Um, and when you kind of break that down a bit in, in sort of trends that we could pick out from that, um, you can see increasingly that portfolio of renewables are, are a growing trend. So it's not just individual assets of a solar farm or a wind farm. It's really that, that whole portfolio that corporates are interested in. We also had more companies than ever signing PPAs because, as I said, in the past, it was a lot of big tech. And now it's a lot more different players getting involved. Um, so, you know, really spreading those benefits and, of course, really exciting moment for, for renewables. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd just like to bring in Jamie here to elaborate a bit on what Annie just said, what PPAs are. You know, why would, in very basic terms, why would someone want to sign a PPA? Um, you know, what is the benefit for the buyer, the off-taker? Uh, and what's the benefit for the, the project developer, the, you know, the organization that actually owns the renewables, just so our listeners really understand why we have this instrument, what its benefits are? Yes, how do you take that one? So at the end, I always like to define PPAs as a tool to basically share risk between the buyer and the seller. It's basically that. It's uh -huh. tailor-made, of course, but it's defining risks between buyer and seller. For the seller, it's crucial because it, because it provides the end visibility on the long-term revenues of the asset. And at the end, it's providing certainty and making the investment feasible. Because if you are fully exposed to the market, you can either earn more money or if you can lose money. But if you have certainty, you can have this visibility and approve an investment at the end. For the buyer, 
I would say it has two dimensions. The first one is a cost, because it also allows you as a buyer to have visibility on the costs. And it also brings here to the debate and to the, to the I would say, to the discussion, the, I would say, the environmental aspects of the, of the BPS. So it allows a buyer to fulfill the ambitious, I would say, sustainability targets. So in a nutshell, I, I would say this is a PPA, a tool to basically share risk between buyer and seller. For the seller, it provides certainty in the long term and it allows investments to happen. For the buyer, it allows to give visibility on the costs of the electricity and it helps to fulfill the sustainability targets. That would be, I would say, in a nutshell, what we understand as a PPA, uh, at least from a developer's perspective. Perfect. Yeah. And um, I would like to bring maybe Rudy in here at this point. Very nice uh, description of a PPA, but there's more than one type of PPA uh, that can, uh, in, in the form of the agreement, I understand, and, that, and that's providing some uncertainty in the market? Well, that, that's really the question you have to talk uh, <laughs> to a policymaker who doesn't <laughs> sign PPAs on it. On <laughs> um, but what I, what I can say is that from a, from a policy perspective, we like PPAs, renewable PPAs in particular. Uh, since 20, essentially 2018, when we adopted the Renewable Energy Directive, we have actually been asking member states to make space for renewable power purchase agreements. Uh, specifically, those renewable power purchase agreements where you add kind of new capacity into the system, simply by a, by a, by a customer, a big off-taker, kind of demanding that, that, that renewable electricity. Why do we like it? Because already then we saw that we need a lot of renewables into the system. And most of the renewables come in the system through government support schemes. So going fine, well, government support schemes and these good old households putting solar PV panels on their roofs. But what we need is a much bigger scale. And that has become really apparent after 2022 20, this year. Uh, the repower targets uh, that's our plan to kind of get rid of Russian fossil fuel gas essentially sees 80 to 90 gigawatts a year on average coming into the system. It's clear that just support schemes alone cannot get that volume yeah. of renewables into the system. So the PPAs I like, going back to that one, are those specifically where a consumer uh, signs an off-taker with a renewable project developer and that renewable project developer can develop a new renewable project into the system and then deliver that electricity to the consumer either through the market, uh, these are called the virtual PPAs, or directly through uh, an, an offtake agreement. May I come in here um, to pick up on what Ruth said? It's, it is true that the PPAs have, uh, at, at the moment, I would almost say we're seeing a bit of a PPA hype. Uh, and we started setting the grounds in the clean energy package. Um, and now we've seen all the, the discussion around market design um, PPAs, yeah, I think it's almost a hype. And I, I would love to have today's discussion. We've just settled the basics of what PPAs are. But I, I'm afraid in order to have an informed debate, we will have to move immediately in, into the advanced level <laughs> of PPAing. We already, so because basically the main point I want to make, and that's really important also for market design, not all PPAs are born equal. <laughs> Some PPAs do a very good job in hedging against the price risk, but not necessarily. You have to define that properly in the market design. We have spent two years in the Brussels bubble discussing the criteria of 
you know, when can you produce green hydrogen when you use power from the grid? And it became very evident that hourly matching is something that is really important. And basically th those rules went a step further and they, they took the PPA as a basis, but then added on. Mm. That's where we are at the moment in the debate. Yep. So there's a couple of issues there. Um, let me need to unpack. Not all, EPOP, not all PPA is created, created equal. Um, hedging price risk, which I think um, uh, Nick might be able to come in here on on that one, and then get into more granular twenty four seven hourly matching. Uh, we'll come to Toby. Nick, can we start with you? Perhaps then he hedging prices and using PPAs to do that is that a, a possibility, especially for companies such as yourselves? Well, uh, it obviously is. Uh, the point is that uh, we've had some regulatory interventions in the past uh, year that uh, have uh, kind of uh, prevented that from happening, at least in some member states, uh, including Greece. Uh, hopefully, we'll see a phasing out of these uh, absurd measures in the coming years, and uh, hopefully which, by the way, is in line with what the Commission uh, <laughs> is aiming for and has actually put into the regulation. Um, but um, hedging is um, for, for particularly price-sensitive industries, such as the one I'm representing, an aluminum smelter. Hedging is um, a really difficult exercise, and it's a long-term exercise. And uh, let me put it uh, into some figures. First of all, we consume, give or take, three terawatt hours of uh, baseload electricity a year. That's, well, that amounts to two gigawatts, let's say, of solar capacity, new solar capacity. And we want to go green, right? So this is a pledge that we've actually made to our shareholders as well, that by 2030, we intend to have 100% of our metal supply uh, business covered by green electricity. And that's a huge leap. Now, that would mean... If we were to add two gigawatts of solar in Greece, that would mean a 40% increase of the current installed capacity of solar in Greece. That's humongous, right? It's, it's enormous. Now, I mentioned the word baseload. What does baseload mean? Because, well, a lot of people know it, but not many people acknowledge the importance of baseload. So that means that we consume 330 megawatt hours per hour every single one of 8,760 hours of the year. We cannot not consume that. If we don't, for more than two hours, if we stopped somehow curtailed, let's say, electricity to this melter for more than two hours, the pots die. We need to actually almost replace the entire facility. That's really an important aspect of security of supply. So that means we would have to figure out a way to do it in the most optimal manner, but affordable, competitive, but also secure. And cost-sensitive is the other element I would like to flag. So 40% of our production cost is electricity. Okay. I don't know if many people acknowledge that, but 40% of the production cost means that if you add 10 euros per megawatt hour to our price, 25% of our gross value added goes down the drain, is gone. So we're out of the market. Just a measly 10 euros per megawatt hour, which, well, for many consumers, most consumers is meaningless. It's, 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 it doesn't matter. So for this reason, we've identified, with the help of DGNR back in 2019, a key risk for PPAs. And that risk for us is shaping. Shaping 
is actually transforming the electricity, the intermittent electricity that comes from new capacity, and I fully agree with Rude on that. It's all about new capacity entering the system, at least for us. So shaping, de-risking shaping is a critical element. If we get a chance, I would like to elaborate a little bit on a scheme that's innovative in Greece. I won't, don't want to take up too much of the time for intros for, by anyone, but uh, it's called the Green Pool, and I would really... Uh, enjoy uh, having a debate with the panel on this particular scheme, which is quite innovative and it will targetedly help electrointensives go green in the way that we're discussing. Absolutely. I maybe want to jump in uh, from EDPR's perspective then, a big customer like that. Have you got experience working people like that and having a, an array of projects um, to, to, to provide a service to a big uh, electric? No, absolutely. And I think this is also in line with what we were saying about bringing the discussion in another level, right? Because as, as EDPR, what we can bring here to the panel and to the discussion is the experience of, of the developer, right? So now we heard the main concerns of a, of a buyer. Now I think it's also good to see our main concerns as developer and the main challenges we are facing from the developer perspective, right? And I'm pretty sure that you all know EDP. If not, I would like to just spend five seconds giving a bit of a flavor of of EDPR and, and, and who we are. So we are basically present in 28 geographies, uh, more than 15 gigawatts of install capacity. So we have, I would say, quite a good uh, uh, approach in these 28 markets across Americas, Europe, and, and also APAC. And if I had to define EDP or EDPR as a, uh, in a one word, it would be growth. So for us, PPAs are crucial, right? Because we expect to grow. And this is really fresh news because we, let's say, we updated the business plan last week, so we will need to deploy, as Nick was saying on the consumer, no, as on the buyer, on the seller side, we need to deploy double of the capacity that we had in 2020. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will, let's say, divide this capacity in countries like in, sorry, in, in geographies like the European geographies in which we expect 30% of the growth mm -hmm. and also in solar, which is the focus of this debate also as well. So 40% or not of the, of the capacity will come from, from solar. Which concerns do we have as developer with PPAs right now, permitting is one of the main concerns. Why? Because this is affecting the end, the liquidity of projects, the amount of projects we, we, we let's say, have to offer to corporates or to other buyers, but in this case, to corporates. The other one would be CAPEX volatility. Why? Because in the past, if you ask Jaime two years ago about closing PPAs, it would be, we close a PPA today and we'll be closing the CAPEX in two years' time because the trend was always downwards. So we were all feeling safe, I would say, with closing a PPA today and the CAPEX two years, one year after. Now this is gone. So we are in a completely different scenario. We need to very much align PPA, let's say execution with the CAPEX. And this is a challenge when we need to close PPAs with corporates because usually the times that we negotiate are longer because we need to educate the management of the, of the corporate. We need to educate the different decision makers and put at the same table all decision makers of the of the corporate. Yeah. What Nick was saying on pricing, it will be the price fixation as well, which is difficult to fix the price in the current context, and this is affecting also the prices that corporates are are seeing when negotiating a PPA. So these are one of the main challenges that we are facing as developer. In yeah. 
I, I would like to bring in uh, Toby here and uh, build on a point actually that that Nick uh, made made earlier. You know that you need to match demand with supply, not just um, you know at an average on an average basis per annum, but actually every single minute uh, or every half an hour, whatever your metric is. And we we're seeing a lot of companies now you know, going out and making big announcements uh, of of targets. You know, Google maybe being the most prominent one. Uh, 24-7 green electricity by 2030, I think, is their goal. Uh, could you just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, How feasible is that? Where, where do you see that, yeah. that trend sort of going with 24-7 green electricity in PPAs? And then maybe yeah. we can <laughs> ask Jaime if he has something on the shelf yeah. <laughs> that he could offer 24-7 exactly. to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so maybe just, just absolutely. Um, you know, a, a couple of points just on, on the the PPA discussion. You know, we, there are. It's very important to understand. There's lots of different flavors of PPAs. Um, you know, some involving price risk, some involving no price risk, short term, long term PPAs, and they're not all equal. And there's often quite a, a mismatch in terms of the objectives of the corporate, which is to uh, you know reduce costs. Um, decarbonize and also to um, you know not to take too much risk on the power market <laughs> compared to what the corporates uh, what the developers need which is that kind of long-term yeah. certainty yeah. and what I think a lot of corporates are realizing is that you know just locking in um, uh, PPA for over a long time with solar um, where there's going to be a lot of price risk over the long term or if you're only getting the uh, solar delivery. And it's also not quite matched to your consumption profile as well. So I think a lot of um, uh, corporates are starting to realize that they do need um, a mix of renewable energy to meet their needs. Um, and we haven't spoken really about utility PPAs. We've been focused on the corporates, but actually the su energy suppliers and the utilities are actually much better placed to take some of these risks because they already buy a lot of energy from different renewable sources and thermal sources, and they supply thousands or millions of customers. So they're much better placed to take these risks and to sign these long-term price certainty. I don't think it makes sense to put all of the, the requirement in providing that long-term um, price certainty for renewables projects onto you know, obviously, if the aluminium smelters in the room <laughs> have that, you know, certainty over the um, um, amount of energy that they're going to need to in the long term, but that's very much the minority of organizations. And I think that there's, um, uh, you know, there are obviously other methods of giving security to developers that are being discussed, like two-way CFDs, um, that, can, that can provide that. What do corporates want and need, and how can we harness that demand from co from consumers not just corporates but also individuals um, to have the most impact on the energy system um, what was said earlier someone said that that PPAs help uh, corporates to um, decarbonize reduce their carbon emissions that's not true having a power purchase agreement with a wind farm does not allow you to say your energy is coming from that wind farm a PPA is just a commercial contract if you want to say that your energy is coming from that wind farm you need an accounting instrument and in Europe that accounting instrument is called the guarantee of origin here we go and <laughs> the guarantee of origin um, has been around for 20 years. It's a very well-established system. Um, a lot of money is spent on guarantees of origin, but unfortunately, they're not sending an effective price signal to the market because they rely on annual matching. You can be 100% renewable by buying all of your energy from a solar plant in June and claiming to use it in the middle of the night and winter. 
And we need to move the guarantees of origin system, and thankfully this is happening, thanks to a lot of work from Michaela and others in the room, move the guarantee of origin system from an annual matching system to a hourly or half hourly or 15 minute matching system so consumers can see where their energy is coming from uh, down to that granular level and it's not about requiring everyone to go to 24 7 renewables because that's very difficult you know even google you know will struggle to get there in 2030 they're not there today um, but by tracking on an hourly level this is sending the most effective price signal for flexibility and the technologies that deliver clean energy that has ever existed. Because these certificates are tradable, so they can be benefit storage assets that can provide them uh, when they're in uh, undersupply and buy them when they're in oversupply. And so there's, we'll see a lot of new offers from energy suppliers, and my company helps energy suppliers make this transition very easily. Um, so that customers can have that transparency over supply. And this is going to, we think, send a really important price signal for all of the technologies needed. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to welcome Maria Flora Middlebull Anderson from uh, Denmark's Real Energy. You fought, you fought your way through the snow to yes, be there today. Yes, I did. Thank, Thank you so much you for joining much us. Thank you very much for 24-7 power purchasing, something that your company is working on as well. Again, do you agree with Toby's... Uh, evaluation perhaps 2030 is ambitious for Google, let alone smaller companies? I definitely agree with Toby's with regards to the granularity, working towards an hourly granularity. I think another thing we really need to consider as well is the additionality. So we don't factor in the renewable energy certificates from renewable assets that has been around and been government subsidized for the better of 20 years. So we actually see, we, we offer an off-the-shelf PPA product based on wind and solar. We have a proprietary tech model where we make an analysis of each individual company's consumption profile and we match them up with the ideal mix of wind and solar. And then you get the guarantees of origin relating to these particular assets that have been constructed as a direct consequence of your power purchase agreement. So I think this combination of granularity as well as additionality is crucial for us to get closer to 24-7 carbon-free energy. We do never reach 100%, uh, I will say. Um, but we can, with the, the generally high amount of renewables in the Danish grid, we can actually always get over 90% yeah. with a combination of wind and solar. This brings well, I, back a lot of things that Ruth spent the last two years on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah Annie. Just, no, just wanted to echo everything was, uh, that was said, because I think, you know, in a world where, particularly in Europe, we're very sensitive to greenwashing, you know, companies really know that they have to act um, and act in a very legitimate way. So, of course, the guarantees of origin is really where the transparency, the legitimacy of the whole PPA market comes into play. So, um, yeah, just wanted to fully support that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Rude, maybe you could jump in there on the uh, guarantees of origin. Um, is that something the EU Commission is perhaps working on to strengthen them so that they become come hourly 15 minute levels? Yeah, so I, I think what already was mentioned was the combination. That's what we're looking at. So you have a, a power purchase agreement and then with those power pur purchase agreement comes the guarantees of origins from those assets which you've signed your contract with. And I think that combination works. There is there's no... Uh, barriers for that 
whatsoever because the guarantees of origin in itself, the product in itself, can already characterize all of the things you need to know. Yeah. Where is the location, what time it's being produced, and what kind of level of the, is it a kilowatt hour, megawatt hour, all of that can be already uh, put into a guarantee of origin. So together they make a really nice combination. I think what's, what still is missing from our side is simply the size. Um, yeah. We're, we're talking here to in this panel to people who are very advanced. They want to all 100% you know, renewable power uh, matching. But if you look at the graph which we showed in the beginning, uh, and we had 6 gigawatts, 6 gigawatts in 2022 signed. Now, of course, this doesn't match year by year, but we had 50, what is it, 55 gigawatts um, developed in 2022. So five, six of those yeah. 52 gigawatts, they were signed by PPAs. Of course, a part of that was also solar PV and rooftops. You can't really sign PPAs with that. Yeah. But still, there's a really big market still out there for that to happen. And I don't know if someone can answer that question, but I think if you look at generally uh, companies which sign PPAs, there's a lot of opportunities still for companies to sign a PPA and then maybe match 15 or 20% of the electricity demand without any worries whatsoever. Yes, going to 80% will be a big thing, but I think there's many companies out there, hundreds of thousands of companies which haven't even started yet. And I think that's one of the key elements which we have to start looking at right now. How can we get engage those into this, this market? With that, we're going to create more liquidity, and then with more liquidity also in the PPA market, also the ones which are the front runners can then yeah. try to find ways to match uh, and get to the 100%. No, thank you very much. I totally agree with you. I see this as a two horizons, right? So we know, we first need to deploy more and more renewables, I would say, into the system. And for that, I think that current PPS, either financial or physical, are doing the job and we see potential. So we need to deploy more and more renewables. And once, as we were saying, we have sufficient capacity into the grid, I see the 24-7 as a short-term management or sh short-term optimization of the consumption so a tool for that, for the short-term optimization of the of the consumers. That's why I think they, they complement each other. We first need to deploy more and more renewables. And I think that both physical and financial PPAs are providing sufficient comfort to, to buyers on the additionality of these PPAs. So they have the geos, even if it's a financial PPA, you always have the geos that have sufficient traceability. You can even deploy blockchain-based solutions to give even additional comfort to the buyer on 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 even let's say uh, lowest granularity, but I think that we should see this as a two horizon solution. First, we need to deploy more renewables into the systems, into the grids, and once we have all this capacity together with flexibility assets such as storage or other energy vectors, we would be able to to fulfill that vision of twenty four seven. That I think it's also very interesting for buyers, definitely. Yeah. I would like to actually come back to a point that Ruth made, um, you know, that there's this gap between capacity and how much of that is actually covered by PPAs. And Annie, on one of your slides, I think it was the first slide where we saw the breakdown by country, you can actually see that like Italy doesn't feature there and Italy has a huge capacity of, of renewables and there are other countries too in Central and Eastern Europe. So why is it that PPA market seems to be dominated by a few players? I mean, from memory, it's Spain, you know, you have the Nordic countries, uh, Germany, uh, and then, you know, there's not a lot, a lot more. So, so why is that that we see this discrepancy between different markets? What's driving PPAs in one location but not in another? 
Well, I think, you know, taking in perspective, the, the country perspective, the, the types of industries that we see signing PPAs, um, you know, maybe to come back to the point that you were making earlier about sort of general barriers to the rollout of renewables, you know, permitting, supply chain, uh, you know, regulatory uncertainty you know these problems are also problems of the ppa markets because if there's not enough projects then then companies can't buy that um i think there's also been a history of kind of certain industries signing that because you know if they had the capital up front um but you know and i'd be interested to hear maria your your thoughts on this because you know i think there's also a big education piece of how do we bring in more types of companies you know i mentioned that you know, last year we saw more more variety of companies signing PPAs than than we've ever seen before. But you know, there are small companies that just wouldn't even think that they could enter into such an agreement. Um, when actually there are, there are really good options for kind of pooled PPAs and you know aggregating um, demand. So I, I think you know, Maria, maybe you could come in here and, and talk about the work you're doing on that. Yes, happy to. So I think just as you're saying, education is one of the biggest barriers we see to expanding PPAs to more companies. So historically, I I'm know more about the Nordic context, but it has been the really big electricity intensive companies that have done it also as a price hedge. And they have typically done one big solar PPA for up to 80% of their total consumption, realizing that it was not beneficial from neither a price hedging point of view nor a sustainability point of view. So I think now the approach towards PPA is actually changing a lot with both larger and smaller companies because they see it as this the solution where the financial side and sustainability side go hand in hand. The larger companies are way more educated. They come to us, they request this, they ask, can we do it like this? Can, can, you, can we tailor a solution? Whereas many of the small companies, we actually have to, we have a very long lead time because they need to understand that this is actually even relevant for them because they've heard of PPAs and they think you need to be able to sign an entire solar park or an entire um, onshore wind project all by yourself. And we actually have our smallest customer has 4,000 kilowatt hours annually in consumption. So, so we actually have a huge span that we can cater to with, uh, with PPAs. Toby. Um, yeah, I think it's, um, it's really interesting this, this point about that you raised, Jan, about um, you know, the capacity of renewables is obviously much greater than the capacity of uh, signed PPAs in Europe, which actually the other point of that is that like, it indicates that a lot of renewables are built without PPAs, where government tenders have proved a very effective way of um, procuring low-cost renewable energy and giving price certainty that developers need in order to build plants. Um, and also, you know, I've just I, I'm based in London, and you know, speaking to some developers in the UK market recently, and they're choosing not to sign PPAs because they're making far more money in the wholesale power market than they would do. And if they if they had sold a PPA uh, two years ago, they actually would have lost. They lost a load of money, and the ones who didn't sign PPAs now have huge amounts of capital that they can use to then build more solar plants. So. Um, it is, I'm not saying that PPAs are not a good thing. I think they're a fantastic thing and they absolutely do make sense for the right, um, uh, in the right circumstances. Um, but you know, when people start talking about, um, buying small amounts of, um, uh, capacity from, uh, certain power plants and moving towards 24 seven PPAs, you know, that it starts to look very much like an energy supply contract that you would buy from a, uh, an energy supplier. Um, and so I think that we, we shouldn't, you know, um, sort of just use the word 
PPA when actually and and sort of over hype it I think is what Michaela said um, because there are lots of um, other ways in which we can bring forward renewable energy and also energy storage and flexibility. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. So are you saying we can get rid of utilities? Is that no, no, no? <laughs> they play the key role. I mean, that is their. That is that's absolutely. Um, you know, I think. I think. Uh, you know, I think you'll see developers starting to get supply licenses. Actually, just a quick comment to that because I I think we need to. This is a, a vehicle with two wheels that need to drive in parallel because everyone who can construct new renewable assets in their own right, with their own finances, by all means, go ahead and do it. Don't sign PBAs, make the profit. I actually think that's that's a great way if the market can make that profitable. When For us, PBAs are what makes a lot of projects bankable, because at least in the Nordic context, it, after you phase down the subsidies, it's extremely hard to finance based on such volatile electricity prices. So I think we need to we need yeah. to see this uh, yeah. running in parallel <laughs> in order to achieve the highest. There are some London capacity. bankers who are happy to debt finance uh, um, their <laughs> merchant risk now. Yeah. <laughs> well, to emphasize as well that message because when you can have bold, I would say movements or or, or I would say ways of, of securing revenues, but when you have companies such as in this case EDP or other similar players, right, or peers, in which, of course, there are merchant opportunities, but merchant is merchant. You don't have that certainty on revenues. And you have a, if you are a risk-averse company, as EDP is, right, you are not willing to take that risk of having an extra... You prefer to have visibility, sustained business plan, sustainable growth, and and uh, and visibility on, on, on these revenues and certainty, right? So th that's why... Of course, you can. If you compare that to bold players, I don't think it's a fair point for PPS because I think they are adding a lot of value into the market, and and of course they can be complemented with CFD auctions from governments. Of course, we as developer, we always see as the two options. We never we never choose one for another. We we see both options and we take the one that is providing the best return, and the best contracted revenues of of the asset. So I see, I really see a potential in PPS, and there is still a lot of potential. And even if you can have bolder, uh, I would say, movements in the market. Agreed. Yeah. And it, you know, I think also, I mean, we, we put a lot of emphasis on PPAs, but of course, in, in the end, it's one tool in a, in a toolbox. And, you know, maybe I'm opening the door now to a kind of market design conversation. Yeah. But, you know, ha having these different options um, and, you know, bearing in mind perhaps the, the elephant in the room for those of us who whose career rely on PPAs, um, you know, as the, the grid gets greener, um, we, we won't have a job in, in 10 years. So, uh, you know, if, if all goes well with the decarbonisation efforts. Um, yeah. We'll yeah. Just a quick question uh, that's coming from the audience. Uh, do you see for uh, do you how do you see PPAs affecting project financings? Uh, I think we kind of touched on it there. Are products going to be able to be more readily available because of a, a vibrant and liquid PPA market? Well, of course, in our case, in the case I can see that mainly the case of EDP as well because we self-finance our projects. So EDP is financing, but it's even worse than banks sometimes. And of course, we again we look at options that are providing routes to market that are providing visibility to, to our assets, right? To the revenues of our assets. 
CFDs, PPAs, and at the end, the PPA, so that having the possibility of having PPAs in these countries is adding much more certainty to EDP as investor and to our, to our, to our shareholders, right? So I would say that, of course, having always the PPA opportunity is always good to, to, for the bank, but it's crucial for the bankability of the projects, even if we decide sometimes to go with an auction, CFD auction, or with a, with a private PPA, with a utility, or with a corporate. So I agree with you that we have different options to have this certainty on revenues. But again, I do see a lot of potential here in Europe uh, for corporate BPS in the coming years. And having said that, of course, we can complement in the future with other solutions, such as you were mentioning on the on the twenty four seven. But uh, but yes, for sure, I see potential for BPS, and and uh, I work on on my daily basis on on PP opportunities, and uh, and I see a lot of uh, of movement and a lot of uh, opportunities. So let's hope it will continue in the coming years as well. Do you want to come in on a point? Rude. Yeah, I was actually, <laughs> I was still stuck with Jan's question about why in Italy don't we have PPAs? And, uh. <laughs> uh, and but it comes back to the electricity market, Zan, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> because not only that, you have another 15 member states where you have zero. Oh. And I think that's the worry which we have from a, you know, from a, from a policy perspective. And Unfortunately, there's no answer because then the electricity market design will be very simple. You know, if, there, if there's only one issue why that is, we can fix it, but it's not, of course. And I think uh, already at the beginning of the year, what we did was, as part of the Repower EU, essentially try to identify kind of, you know, how can we support the PPA market knowing that it's needed. And already there, we essentially had three elements. Um, one of them is that in the past, indeed, there have been regulatory barriers. Uh, one very specific one was, for example, uh, and Nick already mentioned it, people couldn't sign two contracts. Yeah. So if you sign a PPA, you also would have to sign another contract to kind of, you know, shape the rest of your demand. You couldn't do that. Those have been taken away essentially since 2019. So you already have some of those, those barriers taken away. The second one, uh, and that's what you also clearly see, Sweden, a lot of PPAs, but you also have no support schemes. So there, the interaction between support schemes and PPAs is a very important element uh, to look at. Um, the third one, uh, which we also looked at is indeed, is um, the market, the demand for PPAs. Uh, you've shown kind of amazing figures in terms of the, the, the gigawatts, but I'm always surprised by the number of PPAs signed every year. You can actually count them. It's like uh, 200 or three. It's really low number. It's not like if you think about the amount of companies we have in Europe, uh, 40,000, what is it? 40,000 energy intensive ones, millions of smaller ones. And we have 200 PPAs on a year. It's really small number. So expanding that market is another one uh, which we're looking at. Uh, and then a, a third one which we identified is exactly what's on that graph. Some member states don't have any PPAs whatsoever. Still, you know there's lots of potential for renewables to be deployed. And there, making sure that we're tapping into the renewables potential that we have within Europe can be done through PPAs, through cross-border PPAs. That's also something which is not working, uh, which is not happening. Well, it's happening a little bit in terms of virtual PPAs. But there again, looking at how we can use kind of our, our, our backbone uh, using the increase in the connectors that we're pushing to also give signals there on where can we increase the interconnection capacity to bring cheap renewables from regions where they are being deployed to the demand centers that we have within Europe. 
Yes, Nick, I was going to bring you in at that point anyway. We spoke about Greece, uh, and, and I'm not can't remember if Greece was on that list of, of countries. Uh, oh, well, not uh, one of the big ones, but still in there, still, yeah. featuring among them. And uh, by the way, I wanted to build, first of all, on what, uh, what Rude just mentioned about uh, cross-border PPAs. Uh, one very quick word on that. Um, an enabling condition could be to um, boost long-term interconnection rights way longer than one year. Because um, actually um, transporting the electricity from one end to the other, uh, which cannot be effectively financially hedged uh, for longer periods of times, uh, is a key element that blocks essentially, uh, well, at least big corporates from signing cross-border PPAs. I know that in um, probably the repower uh, communication that you guys uh, gave out, you alluded to that, and Acer also points in the direction of at least going for three-year uh, cross-border contracts. Uh, I haven't seen anything in the leak that was uh, released yesterday, so uh, hopefully you guys might uh, end up addressing that uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but I also wanted to mention that, um, also echoing what was earlier said uh, about heavy industry signing PPAs. So we see that... Uh, heavy industry has signed PPAs. And then you look at the breakdown and you realize that electrointensive signing PPAs is mainly something that happens in Norway and Iceland. Yeah. Why? Because shaping happens in a cost-effective way. It's hydro, mainly ca captive hydro, yeah. by the way, or geothermy, so ge geothermal as well. So uh, this is a key element. And I agree, it is possible technically and regulatory possible to shape electricity, but it is a risk, particularly for long-term contracts of 10, 15 years, which for such types of uh, off-takers is impossible to undertake. It's simply impossible to undertake. So mitigating that risk in a cost-efficient way, a smart way, would go a long way uh, towards doing what exactly uh, uh, Rude mentioned, which is leveraging the volume and long-term commitment of electrointensives, which we will absolutely need to get to the targets or near those targets. Because as I said before, for Greece alone, if we were to add the needed capacity to just feed our smelter, that's just one factory, right? We would increase the installed renewables capacity in Greece by 20%. Just us. Mm. So that's humongous you have to uh, acknowledge that if you do that across the board and incentivize through de-risking i'm not talking you know uh, uh, subsidies and stuff like that it's de-risking de it's a mitig uh, uh, risk mitigation uh, tool um, then you will ensure the addition of massive amounts massive volumes of uh, renewables and well i noticed you mentioned earlier cfds and ppas i personally i am uh, a bit allergic to, um, you know, going back to the old recipes with, with a lot of state-backed uh, feed-in tariffs. And, well, you, we call them CFDs now, but basically in Greece, we've had two-way CFDs since the dawn of time. This is the way we've developed uh, renewables in Greece. And by now, res, solar and wind, onshore at least, have reached grid parity, right? So um, just let's make sure that uh, we allow the market to operate and work and deliver. And uh, if they need a boost, then boost PPAs by all means. Not necessarily going back to the old recipe of all state-backed contracts. I don't think that sends the right signal. Michaela? Just so I understand you right, when you ask about de-risking the last mile, 
that's what and you say at the moment so what you what you effectively asking for is a state back guarantee for fossil consumption right no or what what is it that you can you be a bit more explicit sure. yeah well i can basically guide you through the uh concept um so we got Corporate PPAs being signed by electrointensive industries, right? So they're pooled by an aggregator, uh, who is also the supplier of those uh, consumers, for the volume that we're discussing. I know Toby will object to the annual consumption um, <laughs> and the fact that if I'm adding two gigawatts of solar, I actually, or two gigawatts of res, um, I'm actually um, expecting to receive three terawatt hours of green electricity, but th that's just me. So, um, well. <laughs> yeah, well, I know a lot of objection will uh, come from the table because apparently 24-7 for a lot of industries seems very, very doable right now. But uh, trust me, if it isn't doable for Google and Amazon, then it isn't doable yeah. for a lot of... That's what I take, but that's why I would like you to industries. be more explicit. So, exactly. What is it this last mile? So we have aggregation on the part of production, generation, because we add wind and solar to the system. And we also uh, have aggregation on the side of the consumption. So we have aggregating consumption profiles as well, which also helps out and minimizes costs. Then you have an annual tender for the role of the green pool operator. So, uh, so you avoid concentration and you avoid um, all sorts of uh, competition issues and stuff like that. Plus, you minimize the exposure of the green pool operator itself because taking on the risk for longer periods of time is also, well, quite problematic for uh, those actors in, in the market. So you get the green pool, the status of the green pool operator by offering the least cost, the, uh, the lowest price for euros per megawatt hour for shaping the electricity that's thrown into the green pool. And that is in part... Or, uh, subsidized uh, by uh, CO2 revenues, at least in Greece. That's the, the, the design. So 85% of that is subsidized through CO2 revenues of the shaping cost per se, not the electricity. And 15% finds its way to electrointensive consumers in a way that identifies the mismatch as well. So the worse your profile plus the profile of the res you've added, the more you pay, the more you end up paying. This creates the necessary incentive to optimize your demand response capabilities, your flexibility as well, plus not add all solar or all wind because that's you know inefficient for the system. And that is a scheme that has been notified to the European Commission. It's pending approval and hopefully uh, by 2024, uh, we hope to see it up and running in Greece. So that, that's the that's the green pool scheme that you mentioned. More or less the green pool, yeah. yes. I, yeah, I think I I need to spend more time looking at it. That sounds really interesting, and um, I think as long as there is um, some tracking, right, some hourly tracking, and we think that the hourly guarantees of origin provides this tracking mechanism, then that's great because what we need to do is ensure that the shaping is done by fossil-free sources and not just, um, uh, you know, continuing our reliance on, on natural gas. Right. Yeah? Yeah, I'd like to um, come back to a point that I think it was Toby who made it earlier that, yeah, at some point we will have decarbonized the electricity sector in entirely. I mean, we have goals in Europe now for, I think, 2035, uh, similar in the UK, um, also in the US, we have these really aggressive goals for decarbonization. So this idea of matching at a kind of company level really becomes obsolete, doesn't it? If we fast forward 
12 years and we have fully decarbonized, that matching of supply and demand will happen at the system level. And will PPAs that kind of do that for companies, for organizations still be relevant? Uh, will you be out of business by uh, then? I, th I think it, it's about how do we get that as fast as humanly possible for the sake of humanity, right? And so if we're talking about a carbon-free electricity system where we've also electrified all of transportation, all of industry, all of heating in 12 years, great. But, you know, the only way we'll get there is if we have extremely strong price signals that incentivize the buildings of all the technologies that deliver clean energy when it's needed. And what we're saying is you won't get there unless we move to this hourly level tracking. And it's not about going straight to 24-7 because that's really hard. You're absolutely right. It's about measuring what is your level of hourly matching. Um, enough with this kind of 100% renewable greenwashing. Um, let's track where we are on an hourly level and then we can all move forwards and send the right price signals to the market. Absolutely. Um, another question here from the audience, uh, which I think everyone might have an interesting take on. Do you think uh, an EU cap on market prices will impact the PPA market? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but mainly because. Get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. No, but mainly because it's, as I was saying at the beginning, right? PPAs are tools basically to share risk between buyer and seller. And when we sign the PPA, we sign with specific rules, right? And with a framework. If this framework changes, then how we allocate this risk because it will have an impact on buyer or on the seller. How we allocate this, this is creating yeah. uncertainty in the current contract and discussions, right? And it's at the end opening the PPA. And that is the main concern when we close a PPA or when we want to close a PPA in a, in a specific geography. And I would add, this is only one of the reasons why in some geographies we are also having some troubles when we close PPAs because perhaps the regulation hasn't been implemented in a way that it is clear that PPAs are not impacted by the current regulation. So I would say that Of course, any kind of changes in uh, in regulation impact PPA, and actually all PPAs include a specific clause that refers to changes in law, and it's a crucial clause of, of PPAs, even more in the current context. So I would say if we want to foster renewables and, and corporate PPA deals, we will need to have visibility on on uh, on this, on the rules we, we have when we close the PPA, and on the rules we will have for the lifetime of the PPA that It's usually 10, 15 years or whatever. So it's a long-term contract at the end. Yeah. Annie, would you agree with that? Because obviously it would totally affect agree. the wind industry as well as the solar industry, something like that being introduced. Absolutely. Um, you know, as I said before, wider renewables problems are PPA's problems. And we saw the, the implementation of, of a revenue cap done differently across Europe. Um, you know, it sends absolutely the wrong signals to, to investors. Um, sorry to use a wind example, but we did see, you know, already impacting, you know, fewer projects, fewer turbine orders. Um, you know, that's a real life impact of, of decisions that were taken, um, you know, obviously completely understanding the, the wider context we're operating in. Um, but yeah, the, the real life reality. Yeah. Rude, is there something the Commission is still, obviously you can't, I guess, dictate if national governments do it, but is uh, a market cap perhaps something the Commission is looking into? Um, well, I can't comment on that, but what <laughs> I can comment on is, of course, the, the, the cap that we introduced uh, in, in the emergency regulation, which was very clear. Uh, it said that uh, a renewable power purchase agreement doesn't fall under the market cap. And here, in, in my opinion, uh, I would be interested to get, get your views, that theory still holds. Because if you 
sign a renewable power purchase agreement for a certain volume specifically on an hourly basis. You have a contract between the producer and the consumer. You pay a fixed price for that. That fixed price is not affected by the market price. So in theory, if you have a, a, a kind of a pure renewable PPA, you will not be affected by a cap on a market price because your revenue is fixed. It doesn't, it's not determined by, 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 the, uh, by, by the market price. Well, they don't want to sign it anymore. That's the effect, no? Yeah, but if it doesn't have an impact on the price, uh, no, then explain. Because if you have a pure renewable PPA, as it was kind of in, in, in the emergency, it wouldn't affect you. It is even in the regulation that it will not affect you because you are not benefiting from the, uh, the high electricity prices on the market. Thank you for the explanation. I would say that you're right that this is the main guideline of the European Union, but also how the member states are implementing these measures in the, into the specific regulation of each country may include some doubts on, on how physical, if we talk about a physical PPA or a financial PPA, when we enter into the details of the deal, perhaps this general rule that has been defined at European level is not being implemented in the, in the state members as it is fully clear that any kind of PPA, of renewable PPA, even if it's financial or physical, are excluded from the calculation. And we may end up in situations which we as developer, we are closing PPAs to have full certainty on the revenues and reduce our market exposure, but only because this PPA, it's a financial PPA and it is not covered or at least is not contemplated in the specific member state regulation as a supply contract or a, or a mm -hmm. PPA, then we as developers, we are facing this, uh, this potential impact on being, I would say, doubly, double penalized. We are not receiving the high market prices. And on top of that, our PPA is not being recognized as a, as a hedging tool under the, the, the specific member state regulation. Yeah. Uh, Nick, did you... Well, in Greece, it's even worse because uh, every single megawatt hour passes through the power exchange. So basically, you sell the electricity. It's all financial, basically. So you sell the electricity through the power exchange and you earn the cap, whatever that is. And the off-taker in this CFD has to pay the actual market price, which is like five times higher. So there's a missing money uh, issue to clear the strike price. And it's impossible to settle that if you know you are not allowed to have PPAs bypassing the mechanism. And uh, thankfully, thank, I mean, I understand that Article 6 and the recitals of the uh, regulation were to the point. We tried to convince our government about that. And uh, we'll, hopefully we're going to see some changes that will uh, make this compliant with uh, the European Commission uh, intentions as well. Um, we've got a few minutes left. Um, something I'd want to touch on in sort of corporate PPAs and PPAs in general is uh, increasing the digitalization uh, elements of it. Um, as I understand it, they're obviously maybe quite uh, document-heavy uh, contracts, lots of paperwork. Some smaller companies just don't have the manpower, the expertise to deal with these. Um, are there efforts to digitalize PPAs and make them a lot more accessible using, I think people already mentioned, artificial intelligence as well in that, in that sector as well. Um, can anyone comment on that? I'll be happy to. We have, um, we have a digitized onboarding flow for smaller customers, allowing them to enter a pool PPA. Uh, we handle the contractual framework towards the developer, so we only, we're the only counterpart towards the companies. This is, this is a prerequisite for these companies being able to sign PPAs because most of the, our target customers, they are production companies. They typically don't have anyone in-house with legal expertise. 
So for them, they either have to hire legal expertise and then it will be too expensive. You will, it will eat everything that you save yeah. from making the PPA. Uh, so we have a five page long uh, document that you need to review and sign, uh, which is very basic. So, so that's, that's the, I think it's, it's a digitalization that, that part of it, of course, makes a difference, but I think it's actually reducing complexity. Simplification. Yeah, it's yeah. the simplification and having just one counterpart and, and not having to, to encompass the whole legal setup with the developer that makes the biggest difference. Um, yeah, no, I echo that. I think absolutely if you want to make PPAs or let's say other enhanced green offers available to more companies, um, you absolutely will need to service providers and those service providers will need digital tools because um you know most businesses don't are not able to you know have energy experts and energy teams um so we have to make this really um clear and easy and understandable and yeah i think i think we'll see lots and lots of activity there and is the market regulation in place to support these sort of digital products and these maybe digital markets, blockchain markets, anything like that being discussed? Um, I think one of the, the, the key aspects that we're looking at is, is indeed allowing this aggregation. So, you know, all, allowing multiple, well, it's already allowed, but really kind of also incentivizing kind of multiple consumers coming together, trying to find like an innovative solution to get to those renewables. Yeah. And that obviously needs kind of... Um, uh, digital project, but it also needs needs information. Uh, so, so that's the other piece of, of, of the puzzle which we're working on. And I think the the other one, which which each and one of you also uh, talked about, is that as we are going into the electricity market, which is even on a kind of a fifteen minute level, mm -hmm. we also have information every fifteen minutes about okay, what is the state of the electricity market. So those products themselves also will be able to evolve over time as we get more and much more granular information available. And if I can mm, go please. off of that, I think something that really has surprised us is how little insight many companies have on their the emissionality of their electricity consumption and what time over the day they actually consume and when the emission factor is highest and lowest. So I think in terms of digitalization, for us the most crucial tool is actually, it's not... Artificial intelligence, it's just a matching algorithm, but which is able to match historical data of wind and solar production against historical data on an hourly level with a company's consumption in order to be able to see what would actually be the ideal PPA mix. I understand there are some, some different emotions towards 24 seven. Uh, I, I, I understand that completely. I think as a methodology, I think it's definitely the right direction to look instead of just signing one solar and and not actually realizing how many hours you're covered by this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, just echo where, you know, what we're doing is, is helping uh, energy suppliers develop these sorts of products and other service providers, not only energy suppliers, but develop offers for customers that do give them certainty. You can call it a PPA, um, if you like, uh, over which sources, uh, of which generation sources are supplying them with their energy, um, and then giving them that traceability and allowing them to do these um, different forms of carbon emissions calculations down at the hourly level, which is really important. So I think, I think there's going to be a lot of development here. And that's great. If I may add there, 
in current PPAs, we, it is quite standard to include a lot of information related to reporting. So real-time data, production data of the assets, even forecasts of energy, uh, irradiance, wind speed. There is a lot of ex-ante and exposed information that is provided through PPAs. And I guess it will be very interesting to put everything together and digitalize that and, and enhance perhaps the reporting, I would say, side of the PPAs. But also it will be very interesting and this has perhaps nothing or not too much to do with digitalization, but it's, the I would say, the simplification of the current PPA contracts. Because especially with corporates, it takes a lot of time to agree on a specific... Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> with retainers, it was quite, uh, it was quite good. To be honest, but uh, but um, it is really one of the main stoppers when we have to close. P not stoppers, but it's adding more and more time to the PPA discussions and PPA negotiations. And in the current context in which we need to, let's say, put together capex and PPA at the at the very same time, I would say if we are able to also simplify the the PPA documents, the PPA drafts, if we are able to put together in the corporates all the decision makers and, and simplify all this drafting of the contracts that would for sure, I would say, enable more and more, uh, I would say, corporate PPAs in the, in the European market. And you know, if you want to complement as well on, on this. Well, uh, as, if you allow me one plug for the resource website, <laughs> um, it's not a high-tech solution. There is a Word document you can download. <laughs> it is a template PPA contract that is free. And anyone can go use it and has that as a as a nice starting basis for these kinds of negotiations. Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. And, and we are very familiar also with that contract. But I would say that the next step would be to even have a simpler contract. Uh, it will be, very, I think it's a big challenge because we are facing that challenge as, as developer. But I would say that the next step would be perhaps to being able to simplify or even having, a, I would say, a template that is simpler also for corporates. Maybe. Because we as developers, we are, or, or even utilities, we are very used to what a PPA is. But, but we are when we are facing a corporate, they usually don't have the experience. They don't. They need to hire external consultants or legal advisors, and this is extra time, extra cost for corporate buyers as well. So that would be one of the directions also to to streamline also the all this uh, execution of corporate PPAs. Yeah, uh, Nick from a from a heavy electro user, would simple simpler PPAs help you? Simplification or, is, or is always. It, or does the sort of the personalization of them, is that something a bit more attractive to some That's the customer? thing. Uh, simplification is always a good thing, obviously. And uh, it saves everybody a lot of time. And uh, to some extent, I agree with Annie. I mean, the templates that have been provided uh, also um, helped out, obviously. But uh, it is true that if you, you can't go to the other end uh, to the other edge, like uh, standardizing PPAs, because it is a very, very tailor-made um, yeah, exercise, for energy particularly for electro-intensive industries. Yeah. So um, I do agree that uh, to a certain point for a certain categories of consumers, it would facilitate the process of signing PPAs. You would have a very, very simple, uh, you know, tailor, uh, well, you know, uh, one size fits all uh, agreement that's uh, short and sweet, but um, it might be a bit more challenging for uh, large corporates. Interesting. Um, we have time for another question or not? We have one more. Well, I'm going to do one more quick question. If, unless I don't any, unless you have a question. I would have one, but if you have something oh, you from the it. audience. I was just wondering, is that, since it's solar power summit, so I guess it's also solar thermal, 
is there also such a thing as a heat purchase agreement or will we see something like that because it's only it's only electricity <laughs> has uh, is will that come up soon with heat i'm not very familiar but with hydrogen for instance i do see that oh yeah hydrogen i'm very familiar with um, indeed, you see some, some heat purchase agreements uh, already taking place. Actually, the resource platform organized a couple of sessions in, in, in November this year. It was very in interesting to see, uh, for example, solar thermal. Yeah. So solar thermal purchase agreements uh, in industrial off-takers. Um, okay, and they, they essentially are working on two different kind of models. One where indeed kind of the, the design is developed together with the with the consumer, uh, and the other one where you kind of plug more or less a, a, a kind of a, a, a heat uh, heating device, or you provide heating to to that to that industry, and you know industry or Europe is fifty percent heat. Exactly. Um, some of that will definitely be electrified, but even kind of heat pumps providing heat to industrial offtakers would essentially be able to to be done by 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 purchase agreements. But of course, it's much more physically connected. You know, yeah, big it's more local. I mean, yeah, you can't generate the heat um, 500 kilometers Cross away. border PPA. Um, yeah. Not, <laughs> not yet. Right. Guarantees of origin. I can uh, maybe uh, add to that. I mean, aside from being a very electro-intensive business, yeah. we're also heat-intensive because we're a vertically integrated uh, producer. So we have an alumina refinery that eats up massive amounts of heat. Um, so, uh, yeah, that exercise is even harder. Yeah. Right now, it's a high-efficiency CHP facility that feeds that uh, plant. It's gas. Um, so um, the exercise right now is in the direction of evaluating how much hydrogen, ideally green hydrogen, we could pump into that CHP facility to reduce emissions. Electrifying the entire heat procurement for the alumina refinery um, is nearly impossible right now. Yeah. Uh, and for the coming years, um, not just cost-wise, yeah. it's also a matter of technology. Yeah. So the, the the temperatures that you need are way up there, and uh, the volumes as well. Uh, plus, again, base load. Sorry about that, but uh, it is what it is. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that um, eventually, if we end up having some hydrogen, it might go um, uh, a long way. Well, some way into uh, decarbonizing that part of the uh, equation as well. I have one more question, and it's going to be a very simple um, figure for each of you just to um, think about. Based on current market conditions, what duration do you see as most optimal for PP or PPA off-takers? So how long a contract should a PPA cover? Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go along the line, and uh, you can each just get yeah, a uh, uh, duration: months, years. Toby, o optimal for the developer or the consumer? You can pick. <laughs> PPA offtakers, offtakers off for the consumer. Well, I mean, I think uh, you know there'll be some who need that certainty, so ten years. But I think that on average, if we're talking about mass market, I think they'll be looking for shorter contracts, three years. Okay. Nick, from. Uh, a cost-sensitive consumer perspective, I think that uh, long-term visibility and predictability of the cost is essential. So I would uh, go with 10 years. However, uh, that isn't to say um, if it could be bankable with five years, we wouldn't take it. But uh, I mean, 
we have to ask Jaime because uh, on, honestly, uh, these are projects that cost a lot of money and banks are notoriously reluctant to finance something that's, you know, exposed for the for 90% of its lifetime. So, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, there's a balance to strike. Thank you very much, Nick. So from a developer perspective, I would say that, of course, it depends on the price level and it depends on also the, 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 the duration. Ideally, 15 years is what we were as EDP, for instance, looking at the, let's say, these last few years. It depends on the price. But sure. from a buyer's perspective... Yes, yeah, so in current, to, current market conditions. If I had to go to a buyer's perspective, I would say it depends also on, on the additionality concept that this buyer has. Because if this buyer wants to enable a new asset... At the end, he will be looking at the developer. So we, we yeah. need a long-term PPA enabling the investment of these assets. So I would say yeah. it depends on how strong is this feeling of, of additionality in the buyer. If it's strong feeling, which I believe it should be, strong feeling of additionality, I would say 10 years, 15 years, more to the 10 years, given the current market volatility. Were you looking for short snappier? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as, as a platform that represents both buyers and suppliers, yep. you know, we've heard every every PPA deal is, is different, depends on the size of the country, uh, company and, uh, you know, echo and country. what Jamie just said. Uh, Root, I don't know. Do you have, <laughs> have any insight on this side? <laughs> Root has a lot of work, but yeah. signing off PPAs. No, no but, uh, but I have an answer. Yeah, go for uh, it. The average. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just finally then, Maria. I, I will have to agree with Jamie and uh, any Minimum five years for ensuring additionality depends on the company and their price sensitivity. Absolutely. Uh, great. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for this week. Uh, my thanks to our guests, Rude, Annie, Maria, Toby, Hamy, and Nick. And of course, my thanks to Jan and Michaela. If you have any questions for us about anything we've said on this week's podcast, you can tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.